Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. I'm in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and sitting across the desk from me is Pastor David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. No matter how you're joining us tonight, whether it's on AM or FM or online at our website or if it's on Facebook Live, we are honored that you have chosen to Make That's Truth part of your Tuesday evening routine. Now, Pastor, we have a question that's come in via WhatsApp uh, from a listener who was listening last week. He says he was listening last Tuesday. And his question is, how important are the gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11, to the church in the last days? And I'm going to read that passage here quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Now there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but in the same God, which worketh all in all. But the manifestations of the Spirit is to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit of the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And the question again is, how important are those gifts that are mentioned in that passage to the church in these last days, Pastor? I don't think that anybody can read the Bible and ignore the fact that God has endowed his church with numerous gifts. If you did a composite list of the reference in Corinthians, in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12, uh, you'll discover that there are about 19 different gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. So I think the church ignores the gifts uh, to its own peril, and I think that spiritual gifts are indispensable for the church to function effectively. Uh, God never intended the church to be a one-man showmanship. Uh, He always intended that the body of Christ would be the means of getting his work done. And Ephesians tells us that the pastor's job is to prepare the people for the work of the ministry. Uh, That being said, and there are a lot of contentious issues about the gifts that you find in Corinthians and also the ones that you would find um, in, in Ephesians. Part of the reason why there's a lot of confusion and contention of these issues is because 
number one, there's a question as to whether some of these gifts are still applicable today. Uh, that is one of the issues. There are theologians who believe that these some of these gifts were temporary. There are others who believe that they're permanent. Uh, it's a matter of interpretation, uh, but you have to look into the scriptures and then you have to look into church history to see exactly uh, what was happening with these spiritual gifts. The other problem, I think, is the lopsided emphasis that is given to some uh, gifts in the Bible. Um, people are telling you, for example, that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Spirit, you're not baptized with the Spirit. Uh, they're almost making the, the gift of tongues and speaking in tongues an indispensable proof that you are uh, either sanctified or that you actually have, have received the, the Spirit. And that clearly is bogus because uh, Paul would later on talk about the fact that all, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And of course, it's a hypothetical question. And in the Greek language, the answer is designed to be a no. But that has created some of the problems as well. The other thing is that even in the use of the gifts where there is some issue in respect to which gifts are still appropriate and applicable today, even those who claim to use certain of these gifts completely violate the biblical guidelines that are given in respect to how these gifts were supposed to be used. For an example, one of the best examples, of course, is that uh, I've been into churches already where everybody seemed to be speaking in tongues. Total pandemonium and chaos. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians outlines if you're going to exercise that gift, how it's supposed to be done. It's two or three, uh, one or two, and then he talks about the fact you must have an interpreter. I mean, the guidelines are there, and I think that because they're violated, that creates uh, another problem. And then I think there's also confusion about the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in respect to spiritual gifts. Uh, and the final issue that really is somewhat contentious is that with the completion of the canon of scriptures, the Bible being completed, um, are some of these gifts now extraneous? Uh, this is what creates some of the problems. Um, what I would say is that um, the fact that the Bible lists all of these gifts and mentions these gifts, I do think that there are some of these gifts that are appropriate today and can be used today. Uh, what I'm concerned about is the abuse of the claims that people make in respect to these kind of gifts. For example, again, if I might use the one that's the biggest issue, why would I uh, need to speak in tongues in a church where everybody speaks English? That makes absolutely no sense. When you come to the book of um, Acts and you see on the day of Pentecost, we've got people from every quarter of the world coming to Pentecost there. And um, the disciples, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they begin to witness and preach. And the language is used there to speak to people. They never learned the language, but it was a miraculous gift that was given to them to communicate the gospel. And, of course, the people said, how come we hear these men who are from Galilee in our own tongue preaching the wonderful things of God? So clearly that particular gift was given as an evangelistic tool uh, in the first century church. I would not at all discountenance the possibility that if a person went to uh, another country where the language was not a known language and the person was there... I can see God doing something miraculous so that they can communicate in that language. But the way it is used uh, today to bolster people's ego and uh, somehow uh, give people the impression that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the anointing of the Spirit, you don't have the baptism of the Spirit, I think this is not only wrong, I think it's unscriptural, and there's no biblical basis for it. But I, I don't want, because of that particular incident, for people in the church to neglect the fact 
that there are 19 gifts mentioned in the scriptures. And uh, some of those gifts, certainly, whether you believe that some of them are temporary or permanent, you cannot read a list without knowing that some of those things continue today. The gift of helps, the gift of administration, um, and the gift of exhortation. Uh, even the, I would even say the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom in the sense that uh, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And there are some people who are able to take uh, some knowledge some and apply it in such a way that even though you had that knowledge, you weren't too sure how it was applied. Again, there are some people that have uh, the gift of knowledge. They have some tremendous insight into Scripture. But not only that, uh, I think it is possible uh, that God can use somebody to give you insight into dealing with an issue as a believer. So I think a lot of these gifts are, are relevant. But where we have the problem is putting the emphasis on the minor gifts and neglecting the, the, the more premier gifts that the Bible talks about. Paul, for example, uh, mentioned that we should excel when it comes to the gift of uh, prophecy. And of course, prophecy doesn't mean speaking about the future, because most of the prophetic writings they spoke to the contemporary times. Uh, but again, the Apostle Paul um, uh, also adds to us that in the book of Corinthians chapter 13, that we should try to excel in love rather than create all kinds of um, contention within the church, quabbling about gifts uh, that lead not to the edification of the body, but leads to contention and division within the body. But I am not adverse to the gifts, and I do believe that the gifts are given for the church to function properly. And every believer, by the way, uh, if you study Peter, every believer has been endowed with some spiritual gift at the time of his conversion. My, my, my problem today, by the way, is that everybody seems to have one gift, and that gift is the gift of singing. Uh, every church I know, everybody seems to have that gift. Where are the 19 gifts? And by the way, it's interesting that singing is not one of the gifts mentioned in the New Testament. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm against singing and people right. having talent, but there's something absolutely wrong when you've got this, this, this proportion of people, everybody have, have got some um, gift of singing, but nobody seems to have the other gifts that the Bible talks about. Something is wrong somewhere, and I think there's something that the church needs to really ponder and think about, and uh, maybe perhaps re-examine the Scripture and get back to the New Testament model of what the church is supposed to be. So if every believer has been given a gift at least one gift. How do I know what gift I'm supposed to have? Well, uh, you know, there are uh, there are um, ways and means of, of doing that. Um, there, I've known of some um, resources that could pretty much help you to identify what your gift is uh, by certain different categories that, you know, if you're, for example, Generally speaking, if you've got the gift of administration, uh, I think it's a given that um, you are able to think logically, you're able to resolve problems and deal with issues. I would think that you are the kind of person who can manage well. Uh, you can't have the gift of administration you can't manage. Obviously, that's not your gift. Uh, I would think if you've got the gift of helps, you're inclined to be um, always wanting to, to help people in some way. Uh, if you've got the gift of mercy, you have a compassion where you want 
want to reach out to people. So I think there are ways of knowing what gift you've got. Uh, again, I mentioned there are some people that you know that they've got the gift of wisdom. You can speak with them, and they're the, almost the embodiment of wisdom itself. Other people got the gift of knowledge. They have so much insight. So I do think that there are, but there are also systems and, and different criteria that um, I think even in our church, uh, we haven't done it for a while, but we did have some kind of a um, uh, a form that generally speaking, by answering certain questions, you pretty much can get an assessment of what that person's ear of giftedness is. But I would think if a person is concerned as to what gift, uh, I would say, what do you really enjoy doing? Uh, I think that is one of the clearest indications that your your ministry is in line with what you really enjoy doing. If you find that you don't enjoy doing something that you're doing in the church, I think that should be a little warning saying that that is not the particular gift that you've been endowed with. Um, so I think that um, that would be very helpful in that regard. But also seek the mind of God and seek this, uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Remember that He's the one that gives the gifts, and uh, He's the one that we should, could come to and, and seek uh, to find out exactly what gift we've got. Thank you to the individual who sent that very practical question in. We appreciate your input or your question. If you have a question, you can call us and be put live on the air. The phone number, the phone line is available, and the phone number to call is one two six eight four six two seven four two zero. One two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two. One four five four. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is seven forty four. We still have over an hour left in the program. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive call in program. Now, Pastor, we looked quite closely over the last two weeks at the Antichrist, but in Scripture, it also mentions the false prophet. Is that synonymous with the Antichrist? No, I think if you look at the book of Revelation, which we might get get to look at very shortly, uh, you'll discover that in Revelation chapter 13, uh, in addition to mentioning the beast that comes out of the sea, there's another character mentioned, the beast that comes out of the earth. And later on in Scripture, he's described as the the, the false prophet. Uh, He is going to be the chief associate with the Antichrist that is going to be working to fulfill the agenda of Satan, which is simply to promote the deification and worship of the Antichrist and uh, uh, fulfill Satan's agenda for planet Earth. Uh, I would like to also mention, uh, in connection with this matter, that, you know, the Bible warns uh, that false prophets have always existed. Uh, Peter, for example, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, says that there were false prophets back in the Old Testament days and there false teachers among you. And when he's speaking of the end time, he warns that this would be one of the marks of the closing days of this terminal generation. Uh, our Lord in Matthew 24 uh, talks about if you many false prophets. Uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, Paul talks about uh, the introduction within the church of uh, um, demonic doctrines and following uh, uh, evil spirits. 
these are things that are mentioned in Second Timothy chapter four, verse uh, three to four, and then in First Timothy chapter four, verse one to twelve, it, it talks about again the inroads of false prophets coming in within the church. But this particular uh, false prophet is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, he really is the climax of all of these previous false prophets. They, they have laid the foundation pretty much for the world to accepting false belief. And then he comes on the scene and he becomes uh, the satanic spokesman for the elevation of the Antichrist. Uh, he deceives the world. Uh, he twists the truth. He repackages, repackages it and he uh, fosters an insidious falsehood on the world that this one the Antichrist is the true Christ and he is the one that will promote this agenda of the the uh, uh, the the uh, Antichrist. If you look at Revelations uh, 13 verse 11 to 18, well Nathan 11 to 18 uh-huh. and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose head, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of the men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand on, in, or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he have had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that understanding, with understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Yeah, notice that he is a, an associate with the Antichrist, who is the first beast that come out of the, the earth, um, come out of the sea. Um, several things about him. If you look at verse eleven, you notice that he has a deceptive appearance. Um, he has the heart uh, of a beast, but. And he's hostile, by the way, towards the flock of God. And he ravages the saints later on in the book of Revelations. But notice that he has the appearance of a lamb uh, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. And of course, Christ is a lamb of God. And so he has this um, religious appearance as a gentle, mild, harmless religious leader. He's going to be a global, iconic uh, religious leader uh, who will be instrumental in getting the universal approval of the Antichrist. But notice that uh, his deceptive appearance is seen in the fact that he's described as a lamb. But he also is a lamb, but he speaks with the voice of a dragon. Uh, That tells you, quite frankly, that he is going to have demagogic influence um, and a very charismatic orator, uh, one that is able to speak 
and uh, get the world to follow the devil's agenda. He's going to be the mouthpiece, and he will mold and shape public opinion in respect to the Antichrist. But notice he speaks with the mouth of a dragon. If you were to uh, study Revelation chapter 12 and uh, 3 and verse 9, there's no question who the dragon is. Uh, the dragon is calling Revelation chapter 9 uh, the devil, the Satan. So he is Satan's religious agent that will be part of the what I call the infernal trinity, that is the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself, just like God has a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are three people working in concert to bring about the satanic agenda for the end times. Um, he also has... Uh, not only the deceptive appearance, but he has demonic authority because in Revelations 12, 13, 12, we're told that he gets his authority from the beasts and from Satan himself. He's empowered uh, by Satan uh, for, for his work. Just like when Christ was on earth, uh, he functioned as a human being dependent on on God, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and on one occasion, when they threatened, when they uh, accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, uh, he pointed out that if he cast out uh, demons by the Spirit of God, then is the kingdom of God come. So, same way that Christ was dependent on the Holy Spirit when he was on earth as he lived it out, the prophet um, is going dependent on the power of Satan. Uh, to be able to fulfill his function. And then we're given certain detailed activities about him. For example, in Revelation 13, 11, uh, we're told that he rises out of the earth. Uh, and the first beast rises out of the sea. We know that the sea was told in that they're the nations of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the impl- implications here that he rises out of the earth would seem to indicate that this is not a divine being that God has sent. This is more of an earthly person uh, that has come from, uh, not from God, but come from uh, humankind itself. Uh, so I think that some people suggest that the earth there refers to Israel, that he's coming out of Israel. But I'm more inclined to say, uh, point out that he's not coming from heaven, he's actually coming from earth. He's an earthly being energized by satanic power. I think that's the emphasis is there. And then uh, in Revelations 13, 14, we're told that his modus operandus, the method by which he will deceive the world, is to perform miracles and signs and wonders. He'd be a master showman, a wonder worker, and he will deceive people by the signs and wonders that he performs. And he will cause adoring worship uh, to the beast as he mimics the miracles that the two witnesses that God would raise up in Revelation chapter 11, uh, he seems to mimic those same miracles. But his modus operandus by which he deceives the world is by signs and wonders. Uh, I don't have to say uh, much to say that we are now living in the age where people are um, enamored with the signs and wonders movement and I think this is helping to prepare for uh, the coming of the Antichrist. The other thing is that he will erect an image and uh, try to perpetrate global worship of the beast. You find that in Revelation 13, uh, 14. This is the same image that the Bible talks about in Daniel chapter 11 verse 31 and Daniel 12 verse 11 and Matthew chapter 24 which is called the the uh, the abomination of desolation. Uh, he will set up his image and Second Thessalonians talks about that as well. But he is going to direct worship uh, towards uh, the Antichrist and t- towards Satan. And he will also be instrumental of course in giving uh, what is said life to the image of the beast. Now, what this means is is somewhat um, a, a, an enigma. 
uh, is that mean you're going to make the beast animated in some way? Uh, is that uh, We're not too sure exactly what that means, but clearly he would be able to use some deceptive power. Would he, um, a, a demonic spirit, possess the image and be able to speak through the image? Uh, this is part of the whole deception that is going to be used in the end time. And we're also told that um, he will force everyone to receive the mark of the beast, and he will control the world's economy in the interests of the beast, and no one will be able to buy or sell. So he is going to be the spokesman, the PR man for the Antichrist, and he is uh, part of the infernal trinity that will come in the end times and try to uh, deceive man and lead man astray. Which one comes on the scene first? Do we know that? We're, well, we're told, if you look in the, the sequential order in Revelation 13, the, the beast out of the sea comes first, that would be the Antichrist. Okay. And then the, the, the beast out of the earth comes, which is the false prophet. Uh, so they seem to arrive about the same time, but I think the importance that we're given in, in chapter um, about the beast coming out of the sea is that it's coming out of the, the Gentile nations. That's the key why he comes out of the sea, uh, etc., um, so, but I do feel that the emphasis here that we need to know that this prophet is not a prophet that comes from God. He doesn't come from heaven. He comes from the earth. He's an, a, a man that Satan energizes and empowers uh, who becomes the spokesman for the satanic trinity. Is it safe to say he's a religious leader? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. He directs worship uh, towards the, uh, the beast. So he is the premier religious leader in the end time that will... And by the way, it be very difficult to get the world to follow any... Uh, man that claims to be Christ unless you have some religious person, uh, some religious recognized, religious iconic, influential person directing people to worship the beast. Religion and politics will be married uh, in the end time, as the Bible points out, with a woman riding the beast. We'll come to that later. The other thing, Nathan, is that this one, um, the, Antichrist, the, the, the false prophet, uh, he seems to fulfill... Uh, the role of the the Holy Spirit. What well, remember that you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, Satan portrays the role of the Father. The Antichrist portrays, portrays the role of the Son, that he's a son. And of course, the Holy Spirit um, is the third person of the Trinity. The third person of this infernal Trinity is the false prophet. And he's seen to be imitating in that regard. For example, um, we know that Christ, um, the Holy Spirit points men to Christ. The false prophet points men to the Antichrist. Yeah. We know that the the uh, the Holy Spirit is the instrument of God's divine revelation in respect to His Son. The false prophet is the instrument of satanic uh, instrument of revealing who the Antichrist is. We know that the Holy Spirit seals the believer. We notice that in this passage, there's the false prophet that seals all that follow the beast with the mark of the beast. We know also that uh, the Holy Spirit builds up the body of Christ. In this passage, clearly, the, ant the false prophet builds up not the body of Christ, but if you want to use the word, the body of the Antichrist, he, he causes the mass of people to, to want to follow him. We also know that the Holy Spirit enlightens people in respect to the truth. This false prophet uh, deceives people in respect to the lie. So he seemed to be performing, the, 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 the acting in the role that the Holy Spirit is a counterfeit person, just like uh, the Antichrist is counterfeit. The other thing I would say about him is that, you know, when Christ came on the scene, there was one that came to prepare the way for him, 
that was John the Baptist. And uh, it is possible that he is the chief pr- propagandist and promoter of the Antichrist. So in a real sense, he performed the same role that John the Baptist performed in promoting Christ when he came. So I think that um, he's going to play a major role in the end time when the Bible gives those details about him. <clears throat> I'm not asking you to speculate here, but this just came to my mind because I know someone asked about whether the Pope was the Antichrist. Uh, if the false prophet is a religious leader, would it maybe be possible that the Pope would be, not necessarily this Pope, but a, a Pope or someone in that role would be the false prophet pointing toward a political leader who would be the Antichrist? Yeah, I don't I don't have my doubts that the, the, the Pope uh, and the Catholic Church plays a dominant role in the end times. It's going to create the ecumenical movement. As a matter of fact, when we come to Revelation, we study what is called the, the great horde that rides the beast, the, the religious leader that sits on the beast because there's going to be a marriage between the politics of the time and the religion of the time. I think when you get the description of the woman and her dress and the garments that she wears, there's no question that these are the same uh, colors, the same material that is used within the... And then we're told that uh, the woman that rides the beast is the one responsible for the martyrs of the church. Mm-hmm. Anybody that knows anything about church history would know that that's a clear. And then she sits on seven hills, and of course Rome is the capital that uh, sits on seven hills. So I, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, he is going to play a major role. He st- is playing a major role even at this juncture, traveling all over the world, uh, going into Hindu temples, trying to form some coalition with the Muslims. The, the 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 Pope doesn't mind if you become part of the Catholic religion. The only thing that is required is that you acknowledge that the Pope is a Pope, that he's the head. That seemed to be the ambition. It's not concerned about doctrine, not concerned about uh, what the Bible teaches on these matters. It's always been what, what can you do to widen the influence of the Catholic Church and create it, uh, make it a, a dominant church, which it is today. But I don't have any doubt in my mind that um, the, the popes previous and today and to follow will be preparing for this uh, uh, person to come who's going to deceive the world. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8 o'clock. You're listening to That's Truth, the live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, we have a question, WhatsApp message that has come in. It says, good night and blessings. I am from Antigua. When and why did Glossolila uh, get so much precedence over the tongues of men as in languages? Well, uh, the the glossolalia, the word glossolalia, by the way, is the word that is used there in the book of Acts uh, for speaking in tongues. That's the word. Uh, and the the question is, uh, what 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 is it? Is that was the question? Uh, when and why did the speaking in tongues get so much precedence over the tongues of men as in languages? I am not too sure how the person is, how that question is worded. What I would like to say is that the, the people today who are pushing the tongues movement, especially the charismatic movement, they try to differentiate between a human language yeah. and this word glossolalia. And so this word glossolalia is supposed to be a kind of heavenly language, that uh, a kind of a mysterious language. Uh, but that is not correct. And as a matter of fact, you can prove exegetically by going to the book of Acts that this word glossolalia is applied to the dialects and the languages there in the book of Acts. So it's a, a 
complete distortion to suggest that the word glossolalia means anything other, other than the human language uh, so uh, and that's why the Bible said there must be an interpreter as well and no one can read the book of Acts chapter 2 uh, with any serious discretion without coming to the conclusion that the speaking in tongues there was human language I mean it's very very clear and that's the word glossolalia that is used uh, in that same passage. So to make a, a distinction between glossolalia and human language is nothing but a, a distortion and misinterpretation. They are synonymous, and that's the Greek word for uh, the language. Thank you for that question. Oh, in, in respect to why it has become so predominant, uh, the, 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 the tongues and the charismatic movement really, uh, really is something that's pushed mainly by the Pentecostal churches. And uh, they have now... Um, it, pretty much infiltrated almost every denomination. So you've got charismatic Catholics, you've got charismatic Seventh-day Adventists, you've got charismatic Baptists, you've got charismatic Methodists. And the, the common denominator there is the, the, the speaking in tongues. That's the common denominator. But it is mainly uh, the Pentecostal movement that really has put this thing in the forefront and has made it, uh, as a matter of fact, um, they, they almost make you think you're a second-class Christian if you don't speak in tongues, because if you don't speak in tongues, you're not anointed with the Spirit, and you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The problem with that, of course, when you go to Corinthians chapter 12, that every single believer is baptized by the Spirit into the body. Paul makes that very, very clear. So a lot of this has to do with um, false interpretation, and... and uh, the problem is when you start something like this, it's very difficult to turn around and say we were wrong. Mm. Uh, that's the problem with it. And I think that once you've started down this course, even though you can be shown from Scripture that it's not true, uh, and insisting, by the way, that everybody must speak in tongues, when Paul says that is impossible, that's not a gift for everybody, and if God does give that particular gift, it's, it's, it's given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can work up or somebody can teach you or somebody can impart to you. It's something that the Holy Spirit alone gifts you with of His own free will. Are you enjoying Pastor Murphy's teaching style? We would love to have you visit Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. This invitation is for each and every individual who's listening, but if you are attending a Bible teaching church, stay there and if that's where God has you to be, be plugged in and be serving as the body of Christ. But if you are in Antigua and you are looking for a Bible teaching church, we would encourage you to visit Grace Baptist Church. Uh, Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and the service follows at 10 a.m., and then a Sunday evening service at 7 p.m., Thursday evening, we have midweek service at 7 p.m., and that alternates between Bible study and prayer. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.05. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question about speaking in tongues. Now, Pastor, as we get back to our topic, do you have anything else that you want to mention? Yeah, I just about want to inject here um, in connection with this uh, false prophet that um, there are four places that mention him in the in the in the New Testament, uh, I mentioned we already look at Corinthians chapter one, um, Revelation chapter thirteen, verse one to eighteen, where we sh he shares a common agenda. The common the common goal there is that the direct worship towards the Antichrist and to uh, get people to worship the beasts 
and to worship the image and to receive the mark of the beast. So that's the, the common goal. In Revelation sixteen thirteen, if you look there, they, come, they also share not only a common goal of the elevation of the Antichrist and the worship of the beast and his, and his image, but in Revelation sixteen thirteen, they share a common agenda for world deception. Look at what it says there. Revelation 16:13 says and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. I didn't read verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Yeah. See, there's, there's a common goal of elevating the Antichrist, but there's a common agenda as well, that they deceive the, the political leaders of the world, and that's a common agenda. And notice that it's demonic spirits that are going to be used as uh, instruments in order to bring about this deception. This is not just a human being uh, trying to mislead people. The agents at work are infernal spirits, that are powerful agents and that would be able to influence um, world opinion. And then if you look at Revelations uh, 19.20, they share a common sentence in Revelations 19.20, if you look there. Revelation 19.20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he had deceived them, that had received the mark of the beast, and them which worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So they have a common destiny and a common sentence. Uh, their, their doom is already spelled out in the Bible. So they not only have a common goal and a common agenda, but they will share a common sentence and a common doom. Uh, you said that is a call? Yes, we have a caller calling from Bendles. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening, Good evening, sir. Good program, Dr. Murphy, as usual. Yes, how are you doing? Not too bad on you. I haven't heard it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> good hearing your voice. Yes, thank you. How can I help you, sir? Uh, I know it's not... MTV can help me tonight there because I go to a church there on Sunday. Uh-huh. I already talked about speaking about... Well, his wife actually talking about speaking in tongues and care about... If you haven't got the speaking in tongues wrong with that... Uh. Question her if you are Christian because all Christians are supposed to speak in tongues. Yeah. Well, I know for myself, I know speaking in tongues is a gift. Yeah. Paul tells me whether he talks five languages that everyone can understand and he talks a thousand words speaking in tongues that nobody can understand. Correct, correct. But the way he tries to put it in you that if you know speaking in tongues that you are not part of God's family, and mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. Yeah. And secondly, he had speaking about uh, about the dead, you know, when the Bible says it. Self Christ, you have to death to yourself and yeah. to God in everything. Uh-huh. But the way the pastor between you, like, if you do, if you're a Christian and you do dead, you know, you didn't break it down, like, if there is an unsafe person to understand, you know what I mean, what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. To understand what you're talking about. You're talking about if you do dead, you cannot serve God, you do dead. I mean, I know the Bible talk about whether to serve God, genuinely, you have to death to yourself and. Right, carry right, across and right. all about that. Yeah. The way you're talking about if you do dead and you know I mean some sometimes some people people funny. Yeah. Well I'll I'll, I'll just make a few one or two comments quickly. Number one, that woman is out of place. Okay, you read the Bible uh, in connection with uh, what it says about a woman exercising authority in the area of 
biblical doctrine. She has no authority to be telling uh, men uh, those kind of thoughts. You you can't read Timothy without understanding that the the authority that's given with teaching doctrine is not given to women. That's not their job. Uh, that's the job of a, of a, of a pastor. And uh, that's another issue altogether. The other thing is that clearly that what needs to be done with her is to go back to the book of Corinthians and point out very clearly to her that the Apostle Paul himself made it very clear that everybody does not speak in tongues. If it's a gift, it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit alone. He dispenses uh, a gift. There are other 19 gifts. I cannot understand why there's so much focus on uh, speaking in tongues when I can't see any benefit whatsoever other than stoking a person's ego and perhaps uh, causing them to become conceited that they're more spiritual than somebody else. There is no spiritual benefit. They, they don't even understand what they're saying. There's no interpreted. So what's the benefit of that? And if you read Corinthians, as you rightly said, Paul said, you know, I would rather speak five words where people don't understand me than a thousand words where people don't understand me because the whole yeah. purpose of gifts... The whole purpose of a gift, it is never self-directed. The whole purpose is the edification of the body of Christ. That's the whole purpose for the gift. So if I'm using the gift, and I'm saying I'm using it because I'm the one that's benefiting, we have misplaced the purpose for what gifts are given. It's to edify the body. And the, the body can only be edified if a person speaks in tongue. If there's an interpreter, Paul makes that absolutely clear. And Paul said, if there's not an interpreter, tell the person, shut their big mouth up in church. That's what the but, book says. I'm not what I'm saying. That's what Paul says. He didn't use the but, word big mouth, but he told him to shut up, basically. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm just but, paraphrasing it. <laughs> yeah, go but, ahead. But, but what I mean, I, when in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit come upon all everybody uh-huh. in the upper, upper room, yeah. I mean, the Bible tells clearly that everybody here, their language, different. I mean, they, they show you, if I talk in French, I talk English and talk Spanish and German, everybody here, he had the language uh-huh. in the apostle mode, so definitely that was the language that everybody could interpret. Yeah, it, yeah. The other thing is that you've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand what the whole tongues movement was about, because the Bible explains to you that, uh, and, and by the way, if you read Corinthians um, 12 and Corinthians 14, Paul will explain to you, quite frankly, that the gift of tongues, the, 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 the tongues uh, was designed to be a sign to Israel. Um, he said, I will speak to you by the language of another person, another nation that you didn't know about. So it was really designed to be a sign to Israel. And remember that the biggest problem with uh, the Messiah when they came, that Israel up to this day, the nation as a whole, remains in blindness because of their unbelief. So God was um, um, one of the signs if they go back to the prophetic book of Joel. Uh, they would know that God has said, I will give you a sign that I'm going to start this new dispensation called the Dispensation of Grace. And one of the ways you'll know that I'll speak to you in a different language. So, and, and, and the day of Pentecost, by the way, those were Jews from all over the world that had come back to Pentecost. And yeah. that was to authenticate that what was uh, what had happened in Christianity was genuine and authentic and approved by God. It was part of the authenticating proof. Uh, to make the Bible, uh, the, the, the new movement of Christianity, believable by the Jews. So it was actually a sign for the Jews. But, but again, um, it is very, very clear in the book of Acts that the purpose was to speak the wonderful things of God in the language of those people who had come from all over the world at Pentecost so that they would be able to carry back the message. As a matter of fact, I'm now doing the book of Titus. And there's a church where Titus is at Crete. 
Paul never founded the church at Crete, but if you read the book of uh, Acts chapter 2, you see that there were people from Crete in Acts chapter 2, and it's very, very possible that they heard the message of Peter, went back to Crete and started the church, and then yeah. afterwards Paul. So, and, and there are many other churches that, that uh, there's no uh, basis that Paul was the one that founded in, in Asia Minor, for example, but when you read the book of Acts chapter 2, you see that believers were there at Pentecost who went back to their territory and started New Testament churches. So the, the, it was designed as a sign to Israel, but it was also designed as an evangelistic tool. Listen, I have no problem if for some reason uh, a missionary uh, goes to South America and uh, he's dealing with tribes in some jungle area that he doesn't know the language and he come across those type of people. I would not in any way discount the possibility of God sovereignly intervening and giving him the capacity to speak that language so that they hear the gospel. Hmm. But I, I, this idea of uh, speaking a, a tongue that nobody understands, and it, it, it has no benefit in the church whatsoever. In the English-speaking world, it has no benefit in the church. It can't edify anybody. I think what it does, it bloats people's ego and uh, gives them the opportunity to practice what I call braggadocio. That's it. But it has no real um, edification purposes within the local church. But Doctor, when when Paul said that he speak more more tongues than anybody else, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? But again, you remember Paul was bilingual. Uh, you read the book of Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul not only remember he's a, a Hebrew. As a matter of fact, when Paul began to speak in Hebrew, they said the Jews said you, you speak Hebrew too because the common language, the lingua franca of that day was Greek. But yeah. Paul was bilingual. He could speak both English and he could speak. I mean, sorry, he could speak <laughs> not English. <laughs> he could speak uh, Greek and he could speak Hebrew. And of course, he would know Aramaic as well because uh, part of the, the 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 common language in that time was Aramaic. So that's at least three different languages that Paul could speak. But I I wouldn't doubt that Paul had the capacity as well to speak in tongues as a gift. Uh, because Paul was doing itinerary missionary work all over the world. But the main language of the time was the Greek language, and that would be the main language. But he, of course, he would have had pockets of um, groups that he would come across. So I don't discount that. But here's a man, okay, let's say that Paul was bilingual or trilingual or, or whatever. But Paul said, when it comes to the church, I would rather speak where people understand me. I don't want to impress people that I can speak languages, etc., etc. Paul's concern was the edification of the body of Christ, and that is imparting truth in a way that people can comprehend and understand and apply to their lives. And that should be the aim of every church and every pastor, uh, to explain the truth in language that people understand and apply it in such a way that they see the relevance of it to their lives. Okay. Okay, sir. Thank you so much for calling. We appreciate that. You're welcome. Have a blessed night. Thank you for your call. Pastor, is it possible to preach in terms that is still English, but people don't, don't relate to? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, uh, I think that you can be so academic and so dry that uh, people can't relate to it. I mean, it's not that you're not giving content, but where you where you lack the uh the connection is the application and the people that can exhaust a passage of scripture and uh, could go into the Greek language go into the grammar they go into the syntax uh, talk about the different nuances there they can talk about uh, tracing the etymology of a word and that's good stuff it just fills your head but when it comes to the application and I think you can you can lose people's interest by being purely academic without making the application so I think you can be 
you can be educated to, to the point where yourself you're you're almost an ignoramus to the point where you you don't see the connect you're so proud about your capacity and your ability that you try to mesmerize people with your your knowledge and at the same time you neglect the the simple application of the words so i think it's possible you're listening to that's truth on the caribbean radio lighthouse if you have a question you can call and be put live on the air the phone number is one two six eight four six two seven four two zero if you'd rather whatsapp or text your question you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four anything else you want to add pastor about the false prophet before we move on no i just think that we we just need to be very careful that we don't like every other prophetic truth we don't get so absorbed trying to uh, uh, trying to find out who he is and spend so much time uh trying to find out who he is that we could you know, we can get distracted on that matter. So uh, the Bible has given us enough information to know that he's coming on the scene. Uh, we ought to be informed as Christians. And we ought to be aware that the, 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 uh, the, the devil works through religion. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the, the prophetic books. Read the Old Testament and see the trouble Jeremiah had and Isaiah and other prophets had with, with false people who said they were prophets and were false prophets. And that was one of the greatest ten- contentious issues that uh, these people had to deal with. And that has continued. And Peter says in Second Peter that uh, as there were false prophets among the people, even so there be false teachers among you. So he, he lets us be aware that this is an ongoing trend that Satan uses religious people to mislead God's people and we got to be on our P's and Q's and be very watchful and we must try the spirits and use discernment and not accept everything the person is saying because he wears some kind of a, a clerical collar or he speaks with some kind of a religious tongue uh, we ought to examine everything he says and like the Bereans compare what he's saying with scripture uh, Paul the great the apostle Paul when he went to Berea and he was preaching the Bereans Bereans uh, were trying to see if what he said was in line with the scriptures, and uh, that should be the way that we should look at these things. The Bible is the final authority, and it must be elevated above every man and every teaching and every church, and we must examine a person's doctrine and teaching in line with scripture. What would you say to the individual who says, but pastor, my church leaders, they, they don't want me to compare things to scripture? I would say to anybody, if that's a position, find a different church. I make no apologies about that. I'm not here to steal people, uh, flock, and that's not the goal and the objective. But if I was in a church where um, a pastor is preaching something, and I am drawing to his attention that what he's just said is something wrong, and I can show him from the scripture that it's not appropriate, and it's wrong, and I am um, somehow um, browbeaten, uh, or humiliated or somewhere uh, disrespected or humiliated, uh, I would have second thoughts about continuing that church. Let me just say this. I don't think you should try to embarrass your pastor publicly. Yeah. Uh, I would think if he's if he's a good man and he, he makes a mistake and a doctrinal issue or whatever, it's better to confront him privately. But if you are convinced after confronting him privately and he, he can see what you're saying, but yet he continues to insist to go down a different line, uh, 
I think you ought to that, bring that to the attention of the church, and I see nothing wrong in trying to deal with that in a more public forum. But uh, don't try to embarrass him. Um, try to deal with it privately first, and then if you don't get uh, a response that is biblical and proper, then you should take other action. But there's nothing wrong in leaving the church if that church begins to teach doctrine contrary to Scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes that very clear that you need to separate. There is a biblical doctrine about separating from that which is false. Uh, so you don't have to stay in a place. You know, some people's loyalty, uh, and you know, their mom was there, great mom, mom was there. Sometimes when I hear this kind of story, I just, I, it just breaks my heart to think that I would stay in a situation that is uh, not conducive to biblical teaching, uh, just out of a loyalty and uh, how am I going to learn? How am I going to help people? Uh, our commitment is first to God and to Scripture and secondary to institutions. Pastor, a lot of prophetic writers often mention a phrase, tribulation period. What exactly is that referring to? This is going to be the next prophetic event in the area of eschatology. And what I mean by that is the next event we look for, of course, is the rapture. The second event that occurs after the rapture is what we call the tribulation period. And uh, this is a period that the Bible describes that is unparalleled in terms of devastation uh, of planet Earth. Uh, this is the time when God's long-suffering patience and grace has been exhausted, and God finally comes down and removes his scabbard, his sword from his scabbard, as it were, and comes to confront man about his rebellion and his sin and his godless autonomy that he has been uh, living for such a great long time. You know, some people wonder why doesn't God intervene at this point in time, because we feel that God needs to show himself somehow. Well, he's going to show himself eventually, but there's his patience, his long-suffering, and his grace that is being extended. But he's coming in a period called the Great Tribulation. And the Bible describes that period as a time that has never been nor ever will be uh, before. If you look at um, Daniel 12.1 and um, Matthew 24.21, uh, Nathan, I think this would be a description of what we can expect in regard to the tribulation period. It kind of sums up, give you an idea, of how severe and, and, and um, devastating this period of time will be. Daniel 12.1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. This is the, the what is called in book of uh, Romans chapter 11, the election according to grace. And this has to do with the time of trouble that's coming upon Israel. And it says there's never be a time like this. In, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, our Lord um, expresses similar sentiments. 24, verse, verse 21, 21 yeah. says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor shall ever be. That gives you an idea that what is about to come on planet Earth after the church is raptured, there is nothing that has occurred historically that compares with the kind of uh, devastation that's going to occur. And the book of Revelation 
uh, from chapter 6 on to the end, chapter 19 basically, uh, gives you a complete profile of what will take place during that point of time. The Old Testament, by the way, um, uses several terms to, to describe this same period that we call the Great Tribulation. Uh, the most common expression that you'll find in the Old Testament is the Day of the Lord or the Day of Jehovah. And you'll find that all the prophetic writers in the Old Testament refers to that day of devastation that is coming, a time of judgment, etc. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Old Testament designations uh, for this time, they are numerous. And if I might just share a few with you. In Jeremiah 37, it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. In uh, Daniel 9.27, it is called the 70th week. In um, Obadiah uh, verse 12 to 14, it is called the day of Israel's calamity. In Isaiah 34 verse 8, it's called the day of vengeance. In Zephaniah, it is called the day of wrath. In Zephaniah 1.15, it's called the day of distress and the day of desolation. It's also called the day of darkness in Zephaniah chapter 1. In Joel chapter 2, it's called the day of thick darkness. In Zephaniah 1.16, it's called the day of alarm for Israel. Uh, Isaiah calls it the day of indignation. Uh, Isaiah calls it also the day of overflowing scourge in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 15. Um, Daniel 12, 1 calls it the time of trouble. Uh, Joel calls it the day of gloominess. And uh, Zephaniah calls it the day of the trumpet. In other words, there are numerous Old Testament expressions that are used to describe this particular uh, day that's coming, period of time. And uh, you'll notice that it refers specifically to the nation of Israel as a time of their trouble. It's a time of darkness and desolation and distress, a time of wrath and anger. It's like God has pent up all of his frustration, all of his anger, uh, and his patience waiting for man, and has given man 2,000 years plus to repent. And man still continues his merry way, his autonomous, independent lifestyle of rebellion against God. And the day is coming when that patience will run out, and the rope of God's long-suffering has come to its end, and God then acts in wrath and in judgment, a time of severe, severe devastation for humankind. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, um, there are also several expressions that um, describe this period of time. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's called the Day of the Lord, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, verse 7, and Revelation 14, verse 10 and 19, it's called the day of the wrath of God. In Revelation 6, it is called the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, it is called the, the, the wrath that's to come. Thessalonians 5, 9, it's called the wrath. In Matthew 24, it's called the tribulation. In Revelation 2, Revelation 7, it's called great tribulation. And Revelation 14, it's called the day of his judgment. So this is a time where God finally steps from his throne and begins to deal with humankind and the rebellion that has gone on for 2,000 years. Remember in the book of Genesis, before Israel would go into the promised land and wipe out the Canaanites, there were moral cancer that needed to be wiped out. Remember that God said he'd give them 430 years Right, so between the uh, so four hundred thirty years, the Canaanites were given a period of to change and to repent, and they never did. And then God stepped in and God wiped them off the planet. The same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the long suffering of God in, in, in dealing with that particular uh, nation, uh, and again, 
it came to a point where God said the iniquity had reached up to heaven and God came down to act. 2,000 years of patience and grace and mercy and favor and long-suffering. It is fairly exhausting, but the time will come when God says, that's it. The church will be raptured, and then the world will end to a period that it has never seen, never will see again. It will be terrible devastation for planet Earth. You're listening to the program, That's Truth, on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor Murphy, is there anything more specific that the New Testament says about this tribulation period as far as what takes place during this time period? Yeah, we, we, I will mention um, shortly, uh, if you give me some time to uh, look at the New Testament um, teaching on this matter. But I, I would like to, uh, if you could just share with the audience... Um, some of the Old Testament descriptions of this period of time, because I know yeah. we come to Revelation and we see exactly what Revelation, Revelation catalogs it uh, in the, sequentially what's going to take place. But the book of uh, the Old Testament as well gives some very vivid graphic descriptions of this time. If you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 24, you might call this the mini-apocalypse. Um, and it describes the world wheeling and staggering under the divine judgment of God, uh, which has to do with this same period of time. If you just could read some of that with me, please, for me, please. Isaiah chapter 24, uh, verse 1 to 13. All right, starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with the master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken his word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also be defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken with the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. The new wine mourneth, the vine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh, the mirth of tabrets ceaseth, the noise of them that rejoiceth endeth, the joy of the harp ceaseth, ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with with a song, strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink. This is depressing. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole, the, the, you, you get the whole image. Uh, everybody basically come under the judgment of God. Is the seller? Is the buyer? Uh, is the priest? Everybody comes under the judgment of God. And the whole idea is that all the merriment that we have today, the pleasure craze that we've got, is coming to an end. Hmm. Coming to an end. God steps down from heaven and He says, "I've had enough." I've given you enough time to repent. I give you enough. My patience is exhausted. Uh, and if you look at verse number 19 and 20 of the same chapter, just those two verses quickly. 
The earth is utterly broken down. The earth, earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. Again, I mean, this is graphic poetic language that is used by the prophet. But this is not hyperbole. This is this is reality of what's going to come. Uh, it's just that he, he puts it in this kind of graphic language. But you can't read a passage like this. We don't understand. This has never happened, but this is going to happen. And this is the same period of the tribulation. When you read the book of Revelation, then you begin to understand uh, what is going to come on planet Earth and why God's Christ said there has never been nor will there ever be a time like this. It's a time of severe unadulterated judgment that God is going to pour on planet Earth. Look also at um, uh, just two verses, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, well, read from verse number 12. Um, All right, Isaiah I, I chapter, chapter 2. two. I'll read from verse number 12 and onward for just a while. Okay. When ye come to appear before me, that's, verse, verse that's chapter verse, 1. Yeah, verse 12. Let me get chapter number 2. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures. And a, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Continuing. And the idols shall be utterly abolished, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth, would that be an earthquake? Yeah, but you, you, you see the same language here? You're going to find that same language in the book of Revelation where they'll run into the caves and hide. It's the same period of time. I notice it's called the day of the Lord of hosts. Yeah. Right. This is the new, this is the Old Testament description of the tribulation period. And you notice that it is about bringing human pride down. All the imagery that is used there, the oaks of Basham and the cedar of Lebanon, these are just picturesque poetic language that talks about the pride of man, the elevation of man, because the cedars of, of Lebanon is known as these tall, massive trees that rise above every tree. It's just poetic language that's being used here, but the, the, the application is that all of, all of human pride will be brought low. And the only one to be exalted is God. And I don't have to tell you that we are, the, this humankind is full of pride, right? Yeah. That's coming to an end. They're not only the, the pleasure is coming to an end, but the pride of man is coming to an end, as God will once again ascend, uh, assert his sovereignty and deal with planet Earth in the most severe way. Look at verse uh, 21 and read that again. To go into the clefts of the rock and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Okay. 
description. I, I think that um, when you come to the, when you read the Old Testament and then you go into the book of Revelation, uh, you see that it's different language, basically, uh, in terms of the picturesque language you find in the prophetic writings, but the details are actually mapped out in the book of Revelation. What other uh, chapter? Look at Zephaniah uh, chapter 1. If you can find Zechariah, you'll find Zephaniah. <laughs> You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, or broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radio O-R-G. And I have found Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1? Yeah, just read verses 14 to 18. All right. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hast and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the Lord, day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like the blind men because they should they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. I don't think, I mean, really, I'm just watching you read that, and the sober language that is there, you see, it piles up. Adjective upon adjective, trouble, tribulation, darkness, wrath. Yeah. Uh, he's like uh, trying to sum up uh, the, the gist of the essence of what that terrible day is going to be. But again, uh, you notice that human resources would not be able to help. There's nothing you can do. You know, I've got people in America that are building bunkers yeah. for the last days. I'm serious. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw one recently where uh, the, uh, the rich class, they're, they're doing some kind of a condominium that's supposed to be a last time condominium. And I'm told that's almost bottled already. Uh, th- there's nothing that man can do with the, the, when the wrath of God begins to pour on planet Earth. There's no escape from it. It said one time it's like a man running from a bear. And he meets a lion, and he runs from a lion and goes to a house and leans against the wall, and a serpent bites him. In other words, you can't escape. It's going to be like that. But remember that this is God's patience exhausted. Uh, you remember Peter said that people were saying, uh, where's the promise of his coming? We've heard about that from the time we were young. And being ignorant, Peter says, uh, not knowing the long suffering of God, that he's willing that none should perish. So his delay is, is mocked as though, um, you know, he's not coming. But the reason why he delayed that he doesn't want any to perish. But eventually, uh, his patience runs out and his wrath. And he warns us about that. Now, just think about it for just a moment. Two over 2,000 years of grace. How much more time does man need? And uh, this is why the graphic will be so severe, because we have more light. You remember what he told the, 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 uh, the Jewish people? 
if the things I did in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time, yeah. see? And what about us? We have so much more knowledge and understanding of the truth, but yet this is the generation that's turned away from God and has pursued its own way as the path of destruction, has made pleasure its chief God. But how would you answer the individual who says, but pastor, God is a fair God. How is that fair? He's pouring out 2,000 years of judgment on one generation or two generations. How is that fair? Because it, people in previous generations didn't face that kind of wrath. Well, let's think. Let's remember that we are a climatic generation that has more than any other generation before mm-hmm. us. We have more light than any other generation before. We got more gospel than any generation before. We got more Bibles, more churches. Antigua, <laughs> uh, I was recently passing the road and observing on my way coming up uh, here and there are a lot of big churches even on the road coming from from town up to Antigua Antigua is full of churches the place where we are I've just pointed out to our church I'm in, in Gambles Within a half mile, a half mile radius, going right or wrong, we got about twenty-one churches in that location. I mean, uh, there's no reason why any Antiguan should be a pagan, or should not be a safe person. Uh, the same thing I was saying in regards to Barbados as well. That's a place. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of most of the Caribbean countries have got ready access to the gospel, but our people have turned their uh, way, their, their ears away from the gospel. They prefer to go down a road of the pursuit of pleasure, and uh, they've made uh, the almighty dollar uh, the the one they bow to, and materialism has taken over, and as a result, uh, God has pretty much been put on the back burner. People no longer go to church. They no longer send their children to church. They're on their merry way to a devil's hell, and they don't seem to care. And that kind of an attitude, uh, a long-suffering God, soon or later comes to the point where he's had enough, and the tribulation, he's had enough. What would you say to the listener who's sitting there and saying, oh, you said going to church is a good thing, therefore I go to church, I'm okay, I'm okay with God. Is that what makes a person okay with God? Look, going to church is, 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 a, is a noble thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a thing that I would encourage people to do. But going to church doesn't save anybody. Okay, The church is an instrument of dispensing the gospel. And the church is supposed to be there as a means of informing people about what the gospel is about. And the gospel is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's about telling men that they are sinners under the divine wrath of God. They need to flee the wrath to come. And that God has made a wonderful provision in the death of his son to, to forgive man and pardon man and to cleanse man and restore man to relationship. That's the purpose of the gospel. Uh, after the church has fulfilled its purpose of the gospel, the church now has a, a, a ministry of edifying the believer letting the believer grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord through the exposition of Scripture, through teaching, through prayer, through intercession, through fasting, etc. But uh, just going to church is not... You you don't become saved by osmosis, by sitting in the pew somehow. The Spirit gets into you by just sitting in the pew or the Gospel gets into your mind by just sitting in the pew. Uh, It doesn't work that way. You have to come under the convicting power of the Word of God as is preached. The Holy Spirit speak to you, show you that you're a sinner, and then the point to Christ as the one who can forgive you and pardon you and uh, make you into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 844. 
We have just about 15 minutes left in the program tonight, so if you have a question, go ahead and give us a call. The phone line is open and available waiting for your call. The number is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send your question to one 268 782-1454. Pastor Murphy, as we're talking about end times and Bible prophecy, and specifically the tribulation period, uh, anything else from the Old Testament that you want to mention, or do you want to jump into the New Testament? No, I just I just thought I'd give a sample, because you know, most people think the Revelation is the only book that really does uh, an exhaustive study of the tribulation period. Uh, but and again, because we use that term, they don't understand that the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, where we find the prophet on the day of the Lord, day of judgment, this is exactly the period of time that they're talking about. It's just that the remember that revelation, the book of the Bible is is, is progressive revelation. You have a seed doctrine in the Old Testament, and as you move into the New Testament, you find that that is explained in greater detail. All the gaps are filled in until you come to the final book of Revelation. So people need to understand it's an ongoing continuum of re- divine revelation, but it's progressive. And so what you find in the book of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets that it was not very clear what that meant when you come out in the New Testament. A blazing light in the New Testament brings us into focus, so we begin to comprehend that, hey, this is what God has been warning us about, and then he gives us further details uh, in, the, in the New Testament. What about the New Testament? Um, does it use different phrases? Uh, does it describe the the New Testament in further detail then using that rationale that there's a developing... Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, most people would be aware that the book of Revelation is perhaps the fullest complete treatment of the tribulation period. Uh, from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, uh, you have there in, in that section where God provides information about the main events that will take place in the tribulation period, the main characters that will be involved in the tribulation period, and the major geographical places uh, that uh, will have significance during that period of time. The central theme that you will find in Revelation is the theme of judgment, and you will find that that judgment is dispensed and poured out by God successively in, um, in seven in, in three stages of seven, for example, you find that there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. So the book of Revelation outlines it in, in specific order and detail. The seven seals uh, will take place during the first period of the tribulation period. The seven trumpets will take place in the second period of the tribulation period. And then the seven bowls are going to be the final climactic stages that would happen in rapid succession. You know what's interesting Nathan is that if you look at um, the biblical image of the tribulation period it is the image that is used to do that the, the poetic image or the um, the um, the image that is used, the graphic image, it is of a woman in birth pains. Hmm. If you look at Jeremiah uh, 30 for just a moment, and then, by the way, look also at Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, and uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 47, the tribulation period is described there as a woman in birth pains. And, you know, if you know about a woman in birth pains, is I mean, if you have a wife and she's had kids, the pains come on gradually. 
and then they increase and then in the final stages they come on so rapidly that's the how, that's how the book of revelation is you've got in the first section you've got the 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 um the seal seven seals then you've got the next stage is the final stage which is the trumpet and then at the end you've got these seven rapid bowls of judgment it's like in frequency and intensity just like in a woman going through the birth that's why i think the the imagery that is used there look at jeremiah uh, 30 verse 4 to 7 read that please if you got it uh, I do I'm just got to flip it back to get to verse 4 verse 4 says and these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah for thus saith the Lord we have heard a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace ask ye now now and see whether a man doth travail with child wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and that's I, th- I, I think that's adequate. But the whole idea is that the, 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 at this time there's so much trouble. It's like a woman bending down in pain. I see, mm-hmm. I see every man as though he's a woman in travail. That's the, the vivid language that is used because that kind of encapsulates uh, the concept that the severity of the problems at the time and the severity of God's judgment is going to be so horrendous that it will be like a woman in birth pains, stooping and holding her waist because it is so overwhelming. That's how it will be in that day when God pours out his wrath. The, 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 the wrath of God will be so severe. The comparison is used there uh, in order to augment the, the, the concept that it is going to be a time of trouble that we've never had before. So uh, the reason why I said that is that's why the book of Revelation, you've got the, the seal, the trumpet, and then in the last part, you've got seven rapid bowls that are is like the final intense stages waiting before you give birth. That's why uh, you've got that sequential order in the book of Revelation. Now, the if we look at the book of Revelation, which gives this comprehensive um, survey of these things, if we just to go through for just a moment the, the, these things, these seven seals and the seven trumpets, we can only do this in a kind of a... Um, uh, a very brief, succinct way. But in the seven seals, which you find in Revelation 6, the first seal, you've got the white horse, and that's the Antichrist that's coming. He has a bow in his hand. He's imitating Christ. Christ is going to come on a white horse as well. But you've got the image of the white horse appearing. In the, in the second um, seal, you've got the red horse, which the Bible tells us is war. You find that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 to 4. And then the third seal, you've got the black horse, we'll be told that's famine, Revelation chapter 6, verse 5 to 6. The fourth horse is a pale horse, which we're told is death and Hades. you find that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. And then in 6 to 9, uh, 9, to, 9 to 11, you've got the martyrs in heaven. And then in 6, 12 to 17, you've got the total upheaval of, of planet Earth. Uh, so within the first those seal judgments, you've got the Antichrist war that comes, famine, death, and Hades. You've got people that are martyred, and the whole world in chaos. When you read the the seven seals, and then when you come to the seven trumpets, 
in Revelation chapter 8, the first trumpet, uh, the first judgment is blood and hail and fire. We are told that one-third of the vegetation is destroyed, Revelation 8, 7. In the second trumpet, a fireball from heaven, we are told that a third of the ocean become polluted because of this asteroid or whatever that falls into the ocean, Revelation chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. The third trumpet is a falling star that falls on the the fresh water, one-third of all the fresh water in the earth is no longer drinkable, Revelation chapter 8, verse 10 to 11. The fourth um, uh, trumpet is darkness. You find out Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. We're told that one-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars no longer give light. Uh, think of the devastation of that and how impact it will have on the, the whole global, uh, even the, 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 um, the weather patterns. And then the fifth trumpet is found in Revelation 9, 1 to 12, this is where you got a demonic invasion uh, that torments uh, mankind. Uh, we're told that over 2 million, uh, 20, uh, 200 million of these things will come and come from the, 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 um, the bottomless pit. And they will have uh, a sting like a serpent that will torment mankind, humankind. And then in uh, the sixth trumpet, which is found in Revelation 9, 13 to 21, you've got a demonic army, and we're told that one-third of humankind are killed as a result of this. Uh, and then in um, the seventh trumpet, which is found in Revelation 11, 15 to 19, there's an announcement of the bulls to come. One leads to the other, and the, the, by the time the bulls have come, <clears throat> one-third of humankind is completely obliterated. But the time the tribulation period is over, two-thirds of planet Earth is gone. Two-thirds of the people are wiped out by this judgment. Uh, and then <clears throat> the bold judgment, by the way, when you come to that in Revelation chapter 16, we are told that the first bowl is upon the Earth where there soars on those that worship the beasts and the false prophets. The second bowl is Revelation 16.3. It's upon the seas. We are told that the sea turned blood. One third is already destroyed, the other part now turns blood. In um, Revelation 16, 4 to 7, the third bowl is upon the fresh water. The balance of the fresh water also now becomes blood. And then in the uh, Revelations uh, 16, verse 8 to 9, the fourth bowl, we are told it's upon the sun. It now we see such intense heat, it becomes a scorching heat upon humankind, and men are trying to escape the the, the, the rays of the sun and, and can't escape. And then in uh, Revelation 16, verse 10 to 11, the fifth bowl is upon the Antichrist and upon his kingdom. There's darkness and pain upon all those who are part of the Antichrist kingdom. And then, of course, the sixth bowl, Revelations uh, 16, 12 to 16, has to do with the uh, judgment on the opening of the Euphrates River. And you've got also the, the Battle of Armageddon. In other words, John in Revelation 6 to 19 has given you seven uh, periods, seven stages of judgment uh, that comes in three different waves of judgment. So you've got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. By the time it is all over, two-thirds of the world's population is obliterated. Uh, think of the ecological effect it's going to have on the sea, on the earth, etc., etc. That's why the Bible says there has never been uh, 
nor will there ever be another time like this. It's a terrifying time to think of what is coming upon planet Earth. But yet we live so nonchalantly as though this world would continue and there's no judgment to come. And the Bible warns that the day of God's severe judgment is coming, the day of his wrath is going to arrive, and we are warned to flee the wrath to come. In the last two minutes, I've got two quick questions for you, Pastor. The first one comes from a listener in Antigua via WhatsApp. If God is infinite and so merciful and long-suffering, why does his patience run out? (laughs) Because he's also not only a God of love and patience and long-suffering, he's also a God of justice and holiness. And man has offended God's holiness, and God has provided a way for that offense to be dealt with. The problem with man is that man is a rebel. At heart, he's selfish, he's self-centered, he wants to be autonomous, he wants to be independent. He doesn't want to submit to God's authority and live under God's rules. And rebels must be punished. Even on planet Earth, a judge can be kind and gentle and generous, but even he has to dispense justice because uh, wrong and evil needs to be dealt with and a holy God cannot blink his eye and cannot nonchalantly wave a magic wand and and just uh, completely pardon rebels who make choices and make decisions and who are moral beings like himself and he warns us by the way this is what's going to happen so we can expect uh, that his Love is being demonstrated today. His grace is being manifested today. But his hour of severity and judgment is coming because he's not only a loving God, he's a just and a holy God. And as a just and a holy God who is the supreme judge of the universe, he has to judge evil, he has to punish evil because it's against his character and against his nature. But there is a way of escape. There's a provision that is made, and if man continues down this path, he will suffer the eternal consequence of a just God who has done everything within his power uh, to make uh, atonement and provide a means of escape. And my second question, Pastor, is what is the purpose of the tribulation? Well, the purpose of the tribulation, uh, number one, is to deal with the, the world and its rebellion. Uh, I will show you that probably next week. That is a verse of Scripture that makes it quite clear that when tribulation comes, he's dealing with planet Earth and its rebellion. But number two is dealing with Israel. It will point out that he's going to purge Israel, he's going to refine Israel, and he will bring Israel back to faith. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11, which will be grafted. But that's the goal of it. And then, of course, it's to vindicate his righteousness and his holiness, that you cannot, with impunity, continue to live this way. There are consequences to our actions, and God will enforce his law, and he will judge. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of That's Truth. Be sure you join us next week as we continue to talk about Bible prophecy, end times, and the tribulation, period. Have a great night. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse throughout the night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth.
Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.